0: Welcome to our second podcast. I'm Dr. Bob Gill and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Sarah Gangoli. And today we're going to give you an update on what's happening with the coronavirus and also try and tie this in with a general underlying theme of what's been happening to NHS staff over the years with deprofessionalisation. And we'll finish off this podcast with a, talk, with a mention of the uh, government messaging and media reporting of the crisis. So if we can start with um, what's happening with coronavirus. Sarah, what, what is um, on your mind at the moment? What have we learned since last time we spoke about this?
1: Well, since we last spoke, uh, the UK now has the highest death toll in Europe. And the second highest death toll in the world. Now depending on whether you're looking at the official government statistics which is in the mid 30 thousands or whether you're looking at statistics which come from analysis from the Financial Times which actually compares our current mortality rate with normal seasonal mortality rate and looks at the difference they're suggesting that the mortality rate is now around 60,000. It's likely that the figure is quite close to that. Some of those deaths can be accounted for due to an indirect effect of the pandemic. So there's been a scaling back of elective services. People have been discouraged from seeking medical help when they would otherwise. Uh, and these can be put down to say an indirect effect of the pandemic.
0: Well, I've noticed in the surgery um people are putting off coming to see us, they're, they're afraid, they're afraid to go to the hospital. So you're, what you're listing there are the indirect uh, casualties from, yes. the, from the pandemic, aren't you?
1: Yes, uh, I think people, people are afraid for two reasons. People don't want to overburden the health service. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, I mean, before the, the messaging changed uh, this week, it was stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. So people were almost told that if they presented quite legitimately with symptoms, that they were somehow overburdening the NHS. But people are also afraid of going into hospitals and catching this well, thing.
0: Two, two figures I'm aware of is the a and attendance rate has dropped by 50%. Yes. And also the urgent cancer referrals, we call them two week waits, they are down close to 80%. Yes. So just the fear, and maybe the inappropriate lack of health health uh, seeking attention has had a devastating effect on the activity we're we're all seeing in a medical setting.
1: Yes, and it, and it will do. You know that that the, the cancers will still happen, the heart attacks, the strokes, the the blood clots. All of these things will still occur during a pandemic. The pandemic is on top of that, and so it's i think from our point of view it's probably quite important to get the message out that if you are having symptoms which you're worried about seek medical help as you would any other time Um, so yes the 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 figures are really quite alarming and if you go closer to the financial times analysis uh, we now have the highest number of deaths per million in the world and that's a figure which should shock people and she also challenged the idea that we are either an exemplar in how we've dealt with this, or that the response to this has been a success.
0: So this comes on the back of multiple reassurances by government that we were very well prepared. This also comes on the background of Boris Johnson and other members of his government telling us that this was not a serious threat. In fact, I think they issued a, a statement saying One group of our our society, nursing home residents, were at low risk and we'll come back to that later on. But they have been proven completely wrong. Our rate of death is an embarrassment, particularly if you look at third world countries like Vietnam, which borders China, which has had no reported death directly from coronavirus. And the Indian state of Kerala, which was very well prepared has a far lower income per head and has done a fantastic job keeping the deaths down to two, I understand, for a population of 34 million. So our death rate is a public embarrassment and I'm surprised, you know, heads haven't rolled for it.
1: The two examples which you give, I think, are extremely important because they challenge what we're being told about, well, our our death rates higher because of population density? Um, when we know, for example, the population density of cities in Asia is much, much higher yeah. than it is even in London. So so I think it's really, really important to look at those examples, but also look at examples in, in Europe. And something else that's happened, as our death toll overtook that of Italy and Spain, we suddenly saw that the UK government was extremely reluctant to make comparisons with other countries. So it was okay to make comparisons when the numbers made us look good. But as soon as the, the numbers told a different story, bearing in mind that we are at least two weeks behind Italy, when the numbers told a different story they became inconvenient.
0: What was striking to me was the part the BBC played when this happened. When we became the worst death toll in Europe. This was not reported very obviously on the BBC website and in fact they started to play with words and were almost promoting Italy to be the worst performer, the worst outcomes. But they were phrasing it in such a way as saying part of the EU. Well, strictly speaking, we are no longer part of the EU as of 31st of January. So they were playing with words rather than present the true reality, the stark reality to the British public, and this is quite disgusting. It?
1: it is quite disgusting, and another striking thing um, from the BBC was their lack of coverage of their own panorama programme. Um, and this was a programme which actually highlighted the problem of personal protective equipment uh, within the NHS, and there was, absolutely, there was virtually nothing said about it on the BBC News. Now this this programme highlighted several things. And one of the most striking things for me was that there was a change in policy, there was a change in the guidelines for appropriate PPE to fit supply rather than any attempt to adjust that supply according to the need or the guidelines. Um, so they watered down the guidelines in order to fit fit their supply.
0: Yeah, so coronavirus went from being classified as a highly contagious infectious disease of significant consequence to a lower level of severity. And that meant that the guidance they were giving to staff in terms of what they needed to wear to protect themselves was much reduced, as you say, to fit the supply. So we have a bombshell revelation by the Panorama team which was completely ignored by the rest of the mainstream media. Now this is staggering. It's been a long while since Panorama have done a good bit of journalism yet ignored by the rest of the BBC and I don't think that's any accident either.
1: No it's not. I mean another important point about this was um, how whistleblowers um, have been have been suppressed
0: So these are members of NHS staff who are raising concerns about their lack of protection?
1: Yes and and really I mean maybe 10-15 years ago this wouldn't even be called whistleblowing, this would be called doing your job. If the equipment is not appropriate to protect you and protect your patients you have an obligation to speak up. But what was actually happening is that doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals who were speaking up about the lack of PPE were being silenced and bullied by management.
0: In fact, there was um, a report on last night's Newsnight programme on on BBC Two. And we will play a clip of that. A doctor speaking about how he was threatened um, from disclosing his concerns on social media after trying to raise the concerns through the official channels.
2: This doctor agreed to speak to us on condition of anonymity. After concerns about PPE, he tried to raise it with hospital management, but says he was ignored. It seemed to be a case of this is situation, you're stuck with it. Get on with your job. Like it or lump it. I was posting some concerns about national shortages of PPE online um, and my managers brought me up uh, the next day with no notice they hauled me up in front of a panel of senior managers it was very very intimidating and they they gave me a bollocking really for quite a long time and they kept on feeding me what felt like government type of lines um, saying this hospital has never had PPE shortages which I know to be factually untrue and um, that essentially I should stop causing a fuss. If doctors are pressured into silence then where does that lead the rest of society?
0: So if we move now on to testing for COVID-19 this can be a bit of a, con- a bit of a minefield could you just explain these rationale behind testing and the different type of testing
1: Okay so th- there are broadly two types of test which can be done for this virus, or indeed any virus. The first one is called a PCR test. And this is done by swabbing. Okay, And in this case, the swabs which are performed are generally the nose and the throat, because we know this, this, this is where this particular virus multiplies and lives. Um, this tells you whether or not a person, a patient, currently has the virus okay so it tells you about current infections and I believe these are the testing kits which are being sent out in the post um, etc but it is worth mentioning that it does take a little bit of skill in order to uh, to take these swabs properly uh, and get a get a good good result now the second test which has been talked about quite a bit is an antibody test this is a blood test and it looks for specific antibodies to a specific virus or a specific part of a virus now these antibody tests are available there have been some issues with accuracy of of these tests to date although we believe that a new test has been developed by the company Roche um, which has improved on accuracy they're claiming 100% it's it's impossible to have 100% accuracy in anything biological uh, but this is what they're claiming now It's all very well doing an antibody test to see who has had the virus, and it will tell you if someone has had the virus. But we don't know about the clinical significance of this. This is something we touched on the last time. We don't know if there is a significant enough immune response to develop antibodies which confer immunity once someone has had this virus. So
0: a positive test. will will tell us you've had the infection but won't tell us whether that is protective in any way in the future.
1: Exactly we don't know if this is of any clinical relevance whatsoever. What is of clinical relevance is telling us whether or not someone currently has the virus and can pass it on to other people or if they're presenting with a certain constellation of symptoms and they test positive you can say well this is COVID-19 we need to you know, we need to treat this in a particular way. We need to isolate this patient. We need to make sure that this person is not trans- transmitting this to someone else.
0: So, that, that's the PCR test. That's the PCR. Which is a test for the genetic material of the virus, which has been available for years. Yes. Uh, China provided us with the DNA sequence for the virus so we could de- develop a specific test for PCR, PCR technology, which has been around for a long time. But what I find quite perverse is, first of all, the government was not testing as policy. Um, Then they started testing very slowly, then they abandoned testing altogether when they raised this prospect of uh, herd immunity being desirable, which was then again later abandoned when warnings came out about significant loss of life from Imperial College. But what, what is remarkable is that the capacity within the NHS for doing PCR testing, the capacity with, within university laboratories for doing PCR testing, was laying idle. While the government went along developing new labs yes, in partnership with, guess who, the private sector. So you have accountancy firms and big pharmaceutical companies Developing new labs from scratch whilst testing availability in the NHS in the public sector was ignored.
1: Indeed. I mean they, in fact I believe universities offered offered their services um, and, and they, they they were they they were, were not taken up on that offer. And just to give people an idea of how widely available PCR equipment is, I, mean, I did PCR as a medical student. As, as part of, you know, practical um, experiments. This technology is not new and it is widely available. So this idea that we don't have enough testing kits is, is a nonsense. It's an excuse.
0: So returning to the WHO's guidance, which was came out very early, which was test, test, test to break the chains of transmission to identify potentially infectious people and to isolate them, stop them infecting their family and uh, other people, was completely ignored. So the government has, through its policy, through its inaction, through its decision-making, has allowed the virus to be planted all over the country. And something I've found out since the last time we spoke is 18 million passengers flew back to this country in the time since the pandemic was announced. Out of those, only 400 were isolated. 18 million potential COVID-19 carriers, 400 tested. Now, this is remarkable failure. Failure to stop the flights in the first place and a failure to test.
1: I mean, that's scandalous, isn't it? Look, there's only one reason not to test, not to do the PCR testing, not to find out how many people have the virus. And that's if you're not interested in finding out how many people have the virus. And the only logical explanation for that with this current government, with what they've said, is that they were continuing to pursue a flawed, an ascientific and a dangerous herd immunity strategy.
0: And when the government um, set this arbitrary target of 100,000, Well, what that did was two things. It kept us talking about the target and not talking about other important things. But when they did declare themselves of having achieved a victory, this was by misrepresentation. Although they might have sent out over a hundred thousand tests, 40,000 of them were still in the post. So in fact, they have never achieved their target. They still haven't achieved their target. And to most people, they would see a test as having one individual receiving a result and that has not happened that has not exceeded a hundred thousand whereas in other countries like in Germany I think the figures are vastly higher than that and they have far fewer patients who are affected do you know the numbers in Germany?
1: I I, I believe the numbers are around a quarter of a million um, per day in Germany Um, but we know that Germany has really um, has really done quite well. You don't forget that Germany has a population of 90 million.
0: So a bigger population. They mobilised medical students, members of the, of the community. They organised face-to-face, human-based contact tracing, isolation and support for affected households and individuals. Far different from what we've done. We've wasted months and all the government has come out with anything tangible is yet again a private sector solution in devising an app, which is based on flawed science, would require a significant proportion of the population to take it up, and has major concerns about confidentiality and cyber security.
1: I think it's really important that you that you mention the flawed science, because I've seen a narrative um, developing uh, that the scientific community is actually being scapegoated. Um, When when what we actually have is we have um, an ideology driven policy rather than a science driven policy. So we have ideology trying to fit the science into it um, rather than genuine science driving this. I think it's really important to understand that the government is setting up scapegoats already because they know that this is a disaster.
0: Well, I read today the chair of the health select committee was calling this a historic failure of science, or scientific advice. Right. So the scapegoat that we point scapegoating that we flagged up last time, is materialising, and we've also had the public humiliation of the chief scientific advisor, haven't we, from Imperial College, Professor Ferguson. So they are clearly uh, targeting their scapegoats that they've been setting up from the start. Um, And what it's resulted in is actually three pandemics. We have the hospital pandemic, where a high proportion of the patients and staff are carrying the virus or passing the virus amongst everybody else and their families. We have the pandemic in the nursing homes and residential homes, which has been created by government forcing, encouraging the discharge of potentially infected patients back into nursing homes. Now, in any other circumstance, this one act alone would be a major public scandal. Yet, they seem to be getting away with it. And we know from the government's own documentation, they were telling hospitals that this is a low-risk activity to be undertaking. And reassurances were given to, to, to the receiving nursing homes who were still lacking protective equipment. There's one, um, a doctor spoke up, I think he offered his opinion anonymously to the Daily Telegraph. And this was read out on Good Morning Britain by one of the few journalists who seems to be doing a very good job, Piers Morgan.
3: A London doctor told the Telegraph, during the siege of Kaffa in 1346, Mm. when the Black Death was rampant, Mongol army catapulted plague-ridden bodies over the walls. The NHS decanting older hospital patients into care homes without testing isolation is a modern version of this. And he goes on, the doctor... So we discharged known, suspected, unknown cases into care homes which were unprepared, with no formal warning that patients were infected, no testing available, no PPE to prevent transmission... We actively seeded this into the very population most vulnerable. We let people die without palliation. Official policy was not to visit care homes, so they didn't. So after infecting them with disease, causing unpleasant ending, we denied elders access to doctors. We denied GP visits, denied admission to hospital. Effective palliation withheld. What a devastating indictment of what we have done. To the most elderly, vulnerable people in this country.
0: So, if we turn now to this week's developments, which is the watering down and the rowing back from the lockdown, what do you think the what do you think of Boris Johnson's proposals?
1: Well, first, I'd like to to draw attention to some statistics which were also released this week, and these were released by the. Um, the ONS, the Office of National Statistics. And these revealed quite stark differences in mortality rate, depending on occupation, also gender. We already knew from data from China that men were more at risk um, than women. Um, But The differences in in varying occupations is really quite stark. So men have a 9 in 100,000 mortality rate versus 5 in 100,000 for women. Of that male security guards have the highest mortality rate at 45.7 per 100,000. Male taxi drivers come A horribly close second at 36.4 100,000. But building on your nursing home point, social care workers of either gender um, are twice as likely to die um, compared to their age and sex matched uh, controls. Now this points to something really quite sinister Each of the occupations I've mentioned are insecure, they're low paid, um, they often have problems with retention, with training. Um, So we've seen not only um, discrimination against patients because of their age, but we're also seeing that this virus is disproportionately affecting those in low paid and vulnerable work. We also know that there are other demographic factors, so we know that people of a South Asian or um, African Caribbean origin are at a higher risk of mortality uh, from COVID-19. The reasons for this aren't entirely um, clear. Um, These could be related to socioeconomic factors, but they could also be related to other genetic factors, nutritional factors, and other underlying um, disease risk factors. Now, Boris Johnson has this week announced a change in policy.
0: And that's despite us still having around 20,000 new diagnoses of coronavirus every day. And he's announced a change to the lockdown.
1: Yes, and this is despite having increased mortality in nursing homes. Um, Now the question has to be raised whether or not we genuinely had a lockdown in the first place. I, I would argue that we didn't. Um, we were sending Covid-positive pos- patients back to their families. We were sending Covid-positive patients back to their nursing homes. As you said, we have 20,000 new diagnoses per day and there has absolutely, been absolutely nothing in place to reduce transmission within, within the population. This virus has been allowed to run rampant through the population. This is not a lockdown. You also can't impose a lockdown on a precarious population. We have genuine issues predating this pandemic of insecure, precarious employment to people who are financially struggling, people who are one paycheck away from complete destitution. Without employing means to secure these people financially, you're coercing them back into work.
0: So the people in the gig economy who wouldn't qualify for this furlough scheme, who were unable to work from home, were having, they had no choice. Do they eat or do they stay locked in their own house? So the financial imperative drove many of them to carry on working throughout this whole period.
1: Yes, and and, and many more of them will. So you have a situation now where people who are working in manufacturing and people who are working in um, food production etc who weren't working before like bakeries etc. All of these places are are reopening. Um, the, the, The messaging from the government has been so ambiguous and so mixed that you could almost fit any occupation into it and that is going to be used to bully workers to go back to work there are many people who are worried that if they, for example, are living with a vulnerable relative, they have a vulnerable child, they have underlying health care issues themselves and they're frightened, that if they refuse to go back to work they will lose their jobs, they will be facing destitution.
0: So we've had mixed messaging, confusion, and we've seen already, particularly on London transport, on the buses and on the underground, there's absolutely no way that these very overcrowded uh, public transport can Um, exercise social distancing. That's a complete nonsense and that's been shown to be a nonsense already. Uh, Asking people to use private transport. Again, in London, 50% of people don't own a car. So it was completely cloud cuckoo land thinking. Um, And now we're having uh, teachers almost being shamed into returning to work and asking children to return to school. What are your views on, on that latest twist?
1: Well, I, I, to me it doesn't make an awful lot of sense that you know children can't see their own, uh, their own cousins um, and their own you know, aunts and uncles and grandparents, but yet they can go and mix with other children uh, in a school. Now, they, they do have plans to limit class sizes, but they're talking about bringing very, very young children back. Some children who need help going to the bathroom, some children who are going to fall and hurt their knee, and, and they're not supposed to have any any contact. You, you also have to think about, you know, the, these children are, go, are coming from, you know, they're, they're coming from their own homes. They're all mixing, they're then going back to their own homes. Um, the teachers who may well have vulnerable relatives at home, may be vulnerable themselves, will be offered very little protection. And it's been really disappointing to see, again, the narrative in the right-wing press but also the narrative from some very senior labor party figures who are criticizing the teaching unions for questioning the safety of this measure. I mean the teaching unions are protecting protecting their members by questioning this. This is a very
0: And this this is on the back of more and more scientific reports coming out about children being seriously affected by an inflammatory overreaction of their immune system similar to something called Kawasaki's disease. So despite growing concern about children, although the numbers are thankfully small, um, getting them to return to school en masse seemed extremely premature given the high incidence of cases we're still experiencing.
1: We, we hear from particularly right-wing commentators um, and and, and, I, and I don't use that term lightly, but it does tend to be right wing commentators. You don't really, you know, you don't really favour you know, health and safety at work and workers' rights. Um,
0: and are probably commentating from the safety of their own homes.
1: Yes, they probably are commentating um, from the safety of their own homes, but they will point to other countries which have reopened schools. You're talking about countries like Germany, which had the situation under much better control than we can hope to have within the next couple of months. Now Germany itself has actually seen an increase in cases as they've reduced lockdown and Germany was in a much better position to ease the measures than we are. The whole thing seems utterly ludicrous now it's all very well talking about getting people back to work but what are you what are they doing about transport what are they doing about ensuring social distancing and personal protective equipment at work what are they doing about ensuring um, safety of these people's families and what are they doing about testing and contact tracing absolutely nothing
0: so if we move on now to um something i think is quite important in understanding how Is it that the medical and nursing professions have been left so weak and vulnerable and voiceless in the current situation, how this has developed, and the consequences this has on providing safe care for our patients, but also maintaining the psychological health and security of NHS and care workers. Uh, This comes under the heading of Deprofessionalisation. so what has gone on in the NHS in this regard?
1: Well deprofessionalization has been um, a long process. Um, some would argue that it's that it's occurred over over many decades um, but I think you and I have both experienced this more acutely over the last 13-14 um, years. Um, So a series of crises and scandals, most notably Harold Shipman, led to a restructuring of postgraduate medical training. Now this was under the guise of ensuring patient safety and ensuring that, you know, doctors weren't marking their own homework, but it led to the development under the Labour government of a new type of postgraduate medical training called modernizing medical careers. This was based on a very kind of formulaic, overly prescriptive assessment system. No credit was given for, say, overseas experience. Um, and it led to the micromanagement of doctors' careers. It reduced doctors' agency over their own lives, even, because doctors were often placed miles away from their families in specialties they had no aptitude or, or particular interest in.
0: So it became quite rigid.
1: Y- yes. it. it, it, it it became rigid and it became about managing doctor's careers rather than managing safety. Um,
0: and also transferring power away from the doctor themselves as an independent professional and also the, I suppose the, the supervising consultants.
1: Well this is, this is why deprofessionalization occurs when you're trying to corporatize anything you're trying to build a more corporate culture within any organization you have to you basically have to control the professionals there is this tension between professionals um, and managers and with the increase in managerialism within the health service that's occurred since the 1980s there has been that increased tension so ways have been sought to tame Uh, the professionals and in particular the medical profession which is an an old and very very respected uh, profession. It has also occurred in nursing um, in a different way Um, so nurses as they progress through through their careers actually come closer to managerial ranks in order to progress through nursing one almost has to become a manager so it is it's slightly different within the nursing profession but it has happened. Now the purpose um of deprofessionalizing a profession is to make them less powerful than managers okay so you break the cohesion solidarity within that profession you undermine their confidence you discourage and break passion and you encourage mediocrity the effect of all of this is to produce a disparate body um, of professionals with reduced motivation and ability to raise concerns and less chance that they will actually defend others who raise concerns. Generally these measures are designed to either reduce competence or perceived competence and therefore it diminishes public and patient confidence in the profession making them easy targets for scapegoating and we're seeing a bit of that now. It also makes the profession more easily bullied and more easily controlled by managers. Now, this has grave consequences, obviously, for patient health, for the mental well-being and development of professionals. But we're seeing this in the context of this pandemic more acutely, so we're seeing reduced experience of working in teams. You know, previously the apprenticeship part of postgraduate medical training was extremely important in the development of a well-rounded physician or surgeon. But a well-rounded senior doctor who would lead a team, um, there would be discussions around you know uh, uh, cases and education. And everybody had their say, everybody had something to add. There's been a reduction of that. There's been a, an undermining of that portion of the training, which, in my opinion, was invaluable.
0: So that what you're describing there is the, the concept of the medical team or the medical firm led by a consultant with senior doctors be, beneath him and then junior doctors beneath them. And you have this camaraderie, mutual support, respect, which is not only a great educational tool but extremely important in terms of emotional and psychological support and that's been very much diluted.
1: It's been completely eroded and certainly with the, the, the latest contract changes even more so because the shifts are so disruptive um, that you're never working with the same you're often not working with the same people um, uh, very often.
0: And also the, the, the rotations, the, the duration of medical jobs as you work from one specialty to the next has also been shortened. So when I trained, we had a, the shortest spell you could you spend in a, in a specialty was six months. Yes. Now that's been reduced to four months. So what you have is the deliberate creation of doctors who will be rule followers guideline followers, lacking personal confidence and not being given the chance to develop that confidence before they move on to another environment.
1: I mean you've got almost a generation of medics who've been conditioned to accept uh, managerial direction so they're almost having to suppress their clinical concerns and they're certainly not, uh, not being allowed not that they don't want to, they're not being allowed to exercise clinical acumen in the same way that you and I were when we were developing as very junior doctors um, in our six-month rotations with those almost vertical learning curves um, that we experienced.
0: And not only has there been a breakdown in your immediate team but this cross-fertilization of knowledge, experience and Teams working together across specialities has also been undermined with the internal market. So, for example, if a heart patient needed to see a chest physician, the the, the rational route would have been to go there directly, to be referred there directly. But now that's all passed back to the GP. So you have a breakdown in the chain of information exchange. You have a dilution of the information which is being passed on. You're introducing a time delay and you're breaking those naturally occurring opportunities to learn, to learn. from each other. Yeah. You you've you've broken that cohesion and the only reason they've done that is to lay down the foundations for working within a marketized commercialized health system.
1: Yes. And again a point which we've already touched on doctors who have spoken up about this about this lack of cohesion maybe about understaffing um, maybe about concerns that they're being placed in uh, working environments which they don't have the experience or competence to deal with they have been persecuted again we see that the the managerial culture the corporate culture finds whistleblowers extremely inconvenient um, Because in order to set up that corporate culture, you need to to manage people's expectations. You need to manage people's idea of what appropriate standards are. Mm
0: -hmm. So what, what has been lost is what used to be the unifying purpose within the hospital, which was to get the best outcome for the patient. Now that has become an irrelevance, it's about power and control. The patient is secondary to all of this, um, a recent survey conducted by Doctors' Association UK over the PPE issue showed that a third of the respondents to their survey reported that they had been in some way leaned on to keep their concerns to themselves. Uh, We'll put a link to that that article uh, with the description to this podcast. We also mentioned uh, about whistleblowers, if you attack a whistleblower, if you undermine a whistleblower, that has a major chilling effect on the rest of the institution, nobody else dares speak up if that happens. Was there anything else you wanted to say on the deprofessionalisation?
1: I think you've touched on morale, I mean I think that when you have um, professionals whose morale is low, they, they start to care less. We've heard the term compassion fatigue before but when you're constantly changing terms and conditions, when you're constantly undermining people, they do begin to care less and in the context of patient care when you're dealing with lives, that is dangerous.
0: Yeah and you see that when uh, hospital colleagues are forced due to lack of bed capacity for example to have to discharge patients who aren't well or in fact bed managers coming along and discharging unwell patients back home so the the autonomy the self respect the job satisfaction the care for the patient that professional concern have we done the right thing being forced to send covid positive patients into nursing homes now that has a deg- devastating incremental effect on your medical ethics and you start either you're broken by this over time or you start not to see these things because yes. it's pointless.
1: This is also, again, we've already talked, we've already mentioned this, but this has l- left doctors very open to scapegoating. In fact, I saw a headline um, this week which was accusing doctors of discharging patients, COVID positive patients, back to nursing homes. So regardless of whether without or not, making the link this making the link
0: was the official guidance for yes. the trust. Yeah.
1: So regardless of the fact that it's it's managers who are pushing them to do it, it's often managers making the decisions. It's managers who hold the powers and the purse strings. This this is now going to be blamed on doctors, but we knew that was going to happen. We knew that this hero narrative that the two minute clap was actually dangerous and could easily be turned around. We're already seeing that.
0: So if we finish with um, what what has been noticed in terms of the public discourse and the narrative being guided by government and elements of the media, have you picked up any patterns?
1: Well the, the daily briefings are um, they're quite a macabre uh, spectacle uh, we're told of the latest um, statistics but from the government's point of view I think they serve uh, much more Sinister purpose. So not only are we simply being drip-fed statistics on a daily basis and we're becoming desensitized to hearing about hundreds of deaths every day. Um, It's becoming routine to hear about hundreds of deaths um, every day. But it's also this constant presence of the government on the TV, their constant press briefings, It's allowing them very much to control the narrative. And this is part of the propaganda war that we're suffering from at the moment. We're hearing about how well we're doing. You know, we've we've heard the words that we're an an exemplar, okay? Well, Boris
0: Johnson described very colourfully how he feels as a nation. We have wrestled this invisible mugger to the ground and what a success it's been.
2: If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. And so it follows that this is the moment of opportunity. This is the moment when we can press home our advantage. It is also the moment of maximum risk, because I know there'll be many people looking now at our apparent success and beginning to wonder whether now is the time to go easy on those social distancing measures.
1: Yes, and this this again appeals to, you know, people's, I guess, baser instincts of exceptionalism. They've used jingoism. Uh, You know, jingoism was very much present over uh, over VE Day. Um, telling people that this country has succeeded when we have the highest death toll in Europe. Now that that is spin and propaganda of epic proportions.
0: And they have conveniently dropped the international comparisons that they were regularly making until it no longer made them look very good.
1: Yes. Those
0: graphs, if they were presented honestly, with the latest statistics, would show how bad the United Kingdom is doing. As, you say, as we said earlier, the worst death rate per million in the world.
1: Now what propaganda does is it, you know, it not only allows them to control the narrative, but it also allows them to capitalise on this disaster. Um, if any of you haven't read Naomi Klein, um, I, I recommend that you do. But Naomi Klein talks about disaster capitalism, okay? that's
0: in the shock doctrine In book. the shock doctrine
1: yeah. um, and, and, and other books. I mean, this is her. Uh, this is her continuing theme, but and I'm going to quote her. She refers to this as remaking our sense of the possible. OK, so we've seen, um, particularly in Britain and America, but also to a certain extent, China. Exploitation of this crisis to push for, for example, corporate bailouts. Now, these are presented as job-preserving and bailouts, but in reality, it's transfer of public wealth to private hands.
0: One example would be how the government bought up bed capacity in the private hospitals. Yes. In fact, without that, given that their income stream is dependent on elective planned surgery, most of them would have gone bankrupt by now.
1: Yes. We've also seen that regulation and environmental protections um, have been rolled back. And in particular, I'm talking about um, America and China, respectively, here. But we've also seen in this country, we've seen an impact on civil liberties with the COVID bill. uh, The normalisation of, say, uh, intimidation of people who are sunbathing um, or who are taking too long on their daily walk. Uh, We've seen changes to the Investigatory Powers Act, which we talked about on our last uh, podcast. And we've also seen elements of this act which allow the forcible detention of the unclean. Um, so here we're talking about this, this idea that we're facing a plague. And there's actually there's, there's so much analysis of how plagues and disasters can be used to enhance authoritarianism. So Foucault, uh, who's a French philosopher, um, wrote in uh in, the, in 1975 about the experience of handling seven t- the plague in the 17th century and he talked about not only the uh, the containment of a town but the containment of a town within quarters and if you were in a particular quarter you could not leave that quarter on pain of execution you also had to disclose the state of your health on pain of execution And there were monitors who would go round at night and lock people into their homes. Now, they call that a lock-up as opposed to our uh, lockdown in a slight reversal um, of language. But he equates this to more modern concepts of surveillance. And in particular, he looks at Bentham's panopticon. And this was an architectural design, particularly supposed to be for prisons, where one security guard could simultaneously look at all the prisoners in a building so it allowed the visibility of of surveillance without it being specific and if i can quote george orwell from 1984 because he puts it much better than i could there was no way of knowing whether you you were being watched at any given moment therefore it's a very useful method of social control and we're seeing this with the the app that you mentioned earlier with the amount of cctv and also with this, you know, with this forcing people into certain areas, certain confined spaces. Well,
0: yeah, what they would like us to think is that conventional pandemic control measures are no longer any good and we must go with the modern and go with the app. But the reality is this is a back doorway of mass surveillance.
1: It is. And we know that, you know, that, 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 that there, there is no real substitute for... Testing, contact tracing and, and social distancing. We know that these things work. Um, now, the real and sinister intention of all of this is to prevent dissent. It's fairly obvious that neoliberalism has failed. Now, it may not have created the virus which causes COVID-19, but it certainly created the conditions of precariousness and inequality which have led to such vulnerability um, and ultimately devastation within our society. You can't ask a precarious, poorly paid worker to stay off work when they're facing starvation, homelessness or destitution. And the refusal to provide properly for these in the most financially vulnerable position is coercive they are being forced back to work now it's our job to stand up and ask questions okay so you must challenge the greed is good narrative the people before prof the profit before people narrative the notion that neoliberalism is the only show in town, and the idea that inequality is essential we also must challenge the false assertion that this kind of economic system this myth of eternal growth is in any way sustainable. The fundamental belief in a flawed and discredited economic system is what needs to be challenged. And this is driven by the greed of the few.
0: Great. Well, you've given us a lot to uh, think about there. I think uh, we'll um, round this discussion up. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Please have a look at the notes with this podcast and have a look at the links that we've mentioned and share the podcast with your friends and family. Uh, Hopefully you've found this perspective and more in-depth discussion uh, helpful in trying to understand what's going on around us, particularly in this very uncertain time. Uh, Hopefully you'll join us for our next podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.